0: Some of the things that are really amazing to me is we've seen thousands of patients and we've found numerous cases of prostate cancer in those patients. We acted at the right time and those people have what is, you know, for prostate cancer, 98% five-year survival rate because we acted in time to avoid that conversation of, man, I wish we'd caught you three years earlier. Uh, And for me, to have that happen, really came back and, and cemented what has been four or five years of, as you say, the grind.
1: Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we unlock the secrets, tips, tricks, and mistakes of data science leaders from around the world. With that, obviously you can learn, you can get inspired, you can see what's possible, and you can find out new applications or interesting work being done in this space, even if it's in different industries. My name is Felipe Flores, I am your host. Thank you so much for being here. Today, we are speaking with Elliot Smith. He's the CEO and founder of Maxwell Plus, which is a company that is using artificial intelligence to help treat and diagnose patients with prostate cancer. The way that Maxwell Plus and Elliot have gone about doing this is extremely interesting, fascinating, and they're leaders and visionaries at this industry and market, if not globally, The work that they're doing can impact the lives of over 300 million men that have or are being diagnosed with prostate cancer. The way that Elliot got to starting the company and building it and now running it for four, almost five years, it's phenomenal. A really inspirational entrepreneurship story with a strong angle of applied ML and AI. For anyone that's thinking about doing their own startup or in their their journey, uh, this will be a great episode for you. I hope you enjoyed. Here's the conversation with Elliot Smith. Data Futurology's audience is continuing to grow and grow. Did you know that over 12,000 other data enthusiasts across the globe are listening to this episode as well? Well, that's over 20,000 weekly listens to hear content that is loved and shared in the data community. To see how your brand can be featured here or how else Data Futurology can connect you to your audience, Visit datafuturology.com forward slash sponsors or leave an audio message via the show notes below. Connect with us so we can collaborate. We can help you grow the presence of your business, and you would also be helping to continue to grow Data Futurology. Thanks. Elliot, how are you doing today, mate? I'm doing well, for a bit. How are you? Yeah, doing very well. Thanks for coming to the show, Matt. I'm keen to to pick your brain about all, all things uh, health tech related um, and, and how to bring it to life in the real world. But I thought I'd I'd ask you um, I'd kick us off by asking you a bit about your origin story and how how you got into into data, into the world of AI, and then how you chose um, health tech within that. But how was it what was it that first pulled you into into data and AI? Yeah, so uh,
0: I suppose things started for me in my undergraduate degree, which was in electrical engineering. Uh, naturally, a lot of software in that degree, you know, I was more in the microelectronics side of things as opposed to power systems and, and the larger sort of electrical engineering. Um, when I finished that degree, there were a couple of opportunities. Uh, one, I started working in a mining company for a while, uh, which was short-lived. I, like mining was not the industry for me, that's, that's for sure. Uh, but I also had an opportunity to participate in some research at the end of my undergraduate degree, uh, mm-hmm. looking at kids that have cystic fibrosis. Uh, so cystic fibrosis is a quite rare uh, disease that affects a number of different systems in the body, but one of them in particular is it creates a, a thick mucus in the lungs, uh, and if that mucus doesn't get cleared out, it can get infected. Uh, so there's a lot of respiratory physiotherapy. So breathing exercises to help get that mucus out of the lungs. Uh, and the problem we were trying to tackle was that kids, uh, especially sort of under 10 years old, uh, they hated the physiotherapy. As you can imagine, like it's it's sort of hour a day kind of stuff. Uh, and we were working on a project to build a Bluetooth connected physiotherapy device that allowed them to play a game on their phone as they were doing their physio. So their physio would be the controller for that game. And that was a, that was a really interesting, really wonderful project. But I think that was kind of the first time that I was looking at collecting sort of large databases of medical data and trying to do something useful with them. In this case, it was trying to track the performance and, and try and predict Uh, things like infection events on on these kids. So that project went well. Um, We ran some trials, built a few devices. Uh, Ultimately, it turned out to be too expensive to commercialize, but uh, it was a great exposure, I think, to the world of of medical data uh, and data science in general. And that process, uh, along with just a general interest in the space, then got me back to university to do a PhD. Uh, So I did a PhD in biomedical engineering, specifically around uh, designing MRI systems. So electromagnetic modeling and optimization of the design of MRI systems uh, for a particular application, which in this case was combined imaging and radiation therapy to do semi-autonomous cancer treatment. So a lot of that work uh, was around the numerical modelling, simulating um, the design of, uh, you know, for those who know this, those gradient coils for these MR machines. So trading off, uh, sort of, you know, how good your image quality could be with, you know, minimizing inductance and resistance and just, you know, catastrophic failure through large-scale power loss. Um, so that was a really interesting project, uh, and. I guess, was my foundation into the space of AI. Uh, This was sort of, what years has this been? This was probably five or six years ago. So before, I guess, AI and big data were like, the cool ways to talk about uh, numerical modeling and and optimization problems. Uh, I was was working on this for the purposes of uh, electromagnetic design. Uh, When I finished that, Uh, I sort of came to the realization that uh, I loved academia, but it was a little bit too slow moving for me. Uh, I wanted to be out there building things, putting stuff into the world, uh, and decided to have another run at building a startup. Uh, And at the time, I happened to know a lot about numerical modeling, optimization, uh, and and how that translated into things like AI, uh, and also medical imaging. Uh, And... know without jumping too far ahead that's kind of the point where all of this came together uh and the company that you know i now run maxwell plus uh was was kind of born in that collision of worlds
1: very nice mate very nice and um i gotta tell you i i went to the same same university that you went to so um university of queensland a long a long time before you though and um I did uh, computer systems engineering, so quite quite closely related. But I always thought that the um, the electrical engineering side was was way more hardcore than what we were <laughs> doing in in comp side. And, <laughs> and, um, and uh, yeah, we, we would sometimes look down on the on the people doing software engineering, even though some of them are very good very good mates of mine. Um, no mate, super super interesting. How did you decide to? Start a company. What um, um, what was the the trigger point and um and some some of the the lead up to it that would have I guess increased the the pressure over time and made it a clearer and clearer realization in your mind. How was that process for you?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was an interesting one. I think with any uh, startup origin story, there's like that healthy mix of uh, serendipity and and I guess ignorance or arrogance, whichever way you want to look at it. So, you know, the the story, the story we tell uh, is, and and that's how it happened was that uh, I was having drinks with uh, a friend of mine, Steve Baxter, uh, local Brisbane angel investor. uh, And I was talking to him about my PhD, what we were doing in image guided radiation therapy. uh, And he said to me, you know, I just wish we had a way to lay down, get checked, know from head to toe what was going on, and then be able to do something about it. Uh, and, you know, this is this is where the arrogance comes in. Uh, you know, three beers into this conversation, uh, I turned to Steve and I said, oh, I could build you one of those. Um, and, you know, n- nothing really came out of that conversation directly but a few days later uh steve got back in touch and and he said you know elliot were you serious about saying that you could build one of these uh because there are people in my world people in my life that keep getting told if only we would caught this sooner uh, and i'm sick of that being a problem Uh, and so i took that away and i thought about it and started to build you know some actual footing under this this crazy statement that i made about where could we apply analysis of data, especially medical data to the early detection of some pretty serious diseases that are out there in the world. So things like cancer, Um, you know, at the time we were looking at uh, cancer, heart disease, a number of different areas, because it was all conceptual. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've ultimately settled on prostate cancer, Uh, but you know, from the very beginning, it was about how do we find things early at a point where you should be treating them, uh, you know, with a, the with a background in biomedical engineering, it's, it's very apparent the problems of things like treating unnecessary, otherwise benign issues, uh, but knowing, you know, where things are, should they be treated and how best to treat them uh, was and still is uh, very much, you know, my ultimate goal in terms of applying data science and AI to uh, the medical
1: world. It's a, that's also man. It's a complex problem. Um, What, what has made it so, so difficult, obviously for the people that don't know, can you, can you give us kind of like a a one-on-one, one-on-one on the, on the, the complexity of what you're dealing with Um, the, the data capture, the tablet decisions, the the top points in time in which that needs to be flagged. Um, yeah can you give us a little bit of a landscape of 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 this um, this problem in your world
0: yeah absolutely so you know skipping skipping ahead what 's now been uh, about four and a half years uh, wow. we 're a company that offers a subscription to prostate cancer testing uh, for men that are seeking prostate cancer testing, so typically fifty and above sometimes younger with a strong family history and we provide a clinical service that goes from you know the day you consider getting tested all the way through to diagnosis and applies a number of different algorithms to all the data that's collected in between. Now, some of that is time series analysis of blood test data. Some of that is combinations of blood test data and demographic factors. So you may answer things like, uh, did your father have prostate cancer? Did your mother have breast cancer? Um, And other factors that can combine into what ultimately comes down to a decision tool for the doctors that we employ. And those doctors use that tool to help guide men through follow-up testing all the way through to the point of an MRI, where we apply our image analysis tech that looks for signs of tumors uh, and then uses the additional data we have on that patient to determine is this a tumor that we should be considering uh, a problem or is it something that's likely to be benign and slow growing and, and better left alone. Uh, and, you know, ultimately after that, do you need to be passed on for a, a biopsy? Uh, so we do this online. Men sign up on our website. Uh, they can start getting tested. If they've been tested before, we pull in all that data uh, that, you know, they've had existing blood tests and so on. And I guess the complexity in this comes not only in some of the AI models in isolation, you know, some of these imaging models, Uh, take concepts from things like ResNet, but then look to apply them not only to 3D in the context of MRI, but multiple sequences in MRI. And some of those are time series in 3D. So you can have four or five dimensional data uh, and we're passing that into machine learning models that then combine time series blood test data to get an overall picture of uh, essentially risk for that individual patient. So the data itself is, is big in, in the real sense of the world uh, and quite disparate. You know, despite everyone's best intentions, there is a lot of uh, differences between, you know, if you've got an MRI in, in one center and, and then in another, uh, you know, you couldn't just put that data together the next day So, as much as our system involves artificial intelligence and and image processing, there's probably just as much, if not more, work in around data standardization, data cleanliness, uh, and even from time to time, manual intervention into data to say, you know, is this what we think it is? Um, Which I think, you know, as somebody who started in research and then ended up in the commercial world, I think in the academia, in the literature, you often miss just how much work in real-world data sets when you don't have protocols, when you don't have standardization is put into data cleanliness.
1: 100% man, and that's, that's exactly the next bit that I wanted to, to ask you about. Um, and then we can sort of work our way through the, through the pipeline, but starting with, with the, the data gathering and, and the data capture, um, how has that process been for you guys, uh, obviously over, over time and, and now being quite, quite established being around almost five years, as, as you would know, it's kind of, it's, it's less than 1% or around 1% of startups that make it to the five-year mark. Um, you guys are almost there. So that's, that's amazing. Um, how did you guys go through solving this type of problem? Um, around the, the data capture and being able to access the the lab results and the, the imaging and down to that level, because um, most most people get get stuck at the point of um, seeing which doctors uh, a certain patient visited and when. Um, mm-hmm. If they got bloods, they might get uh, an information that says this person got bloods, um, but what what the results were is. Um, um uh, has been a challenge for for a lot of people um how, how have you guys crossed that the gap or the yeah that side mm. so yeah i
0: mean that that is an interesting one and, and really another perhaps underappreciated aspect of, of building a lot of this sort of real world AI data science applications where you know unlike Kaggle, nobody's got a hundred thousand examples in a nicely organized folder to to give you um <laughs> I would say that probably the first two to two and a half years of our business, as we were building these models and testing ideas in parallel, we were building clinical relationships. Mm. So this was going out to, to doctors, uh, you know, here in Australia, as well as internationally talking to them about what we wanted to achieve and working out a way to form collaborations with them over research on, on data that they had available. And, you know, we've assembled a very large database on, on prostate cancer patients. Uh, we have hundreds of thousands of, of patients and, and, you know, multiply that by uh, whatever to look at the data points themselves. Uh, but that has not, that was not in a single archive by any means. Uh, you know, this is data from all over the world. Some institutions might have, you know, provided us with data on 10 people. But mm. the reality for us was that there just wasn't a, uh, single database that, that fit all the, the needs that we had and, and likely if there was somebody would have made us to where we are um, so a lot of our time was spent building these clinical relationships and, and gathering data uh, piece by piece and, and you know more recently since we've been in market and, and approved as a, a medical device having integrations into these systems more generally Uh, So integrations into the messaging systems that deliver results between clinics, doctors can now CC Maxwell plus uh, in their results and these results get end up in our system. And similarly with MRI scans, uh, they can be pushed directly into our system, but that's, you know, five years of engineering effort to get there. Uh, Believe me, like uh, I even have one on my desk, like the early days, this is how we got our MRIs. It's a, it's a CD. And it's got one scan at a time and we just, we pulled them off the CD Uh, because, you know, for us, that's just kind of what we had to do uh,
1: to get the data that we needed. Definitely, man. Definitely. And um, that's, that's amazing. (laughs) And, um, and I'm sure you, you were trying different avenues to, um, to be able to get to, to this data and, and, um, we we've had other other people in the podcast that um for example when one, one guy um also had an ai uh company in the health tech space where they were doing discharge outpatient clinic uh scheduling and it was based on the discharge notes for example and, and they were telling us that the also that the main thing was the the data capture the data sending the data cleaning that's like, yeah, the biggest, the biggest barrier. Um, did you guys find greater success in approaching uh, doctors directly? Or was it, or was it like medical centers? Uh, or was it like software companies that, that provided the software to the, to the doctors? Uh, was it something else? Was it um, hospitals? Um, did you, did you try different avenues and then found that one that worked better for you guys?
0: Yeah, we certainly tried you know, probably all of those and, and more. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we approached hospitals, we approached individual doctors, large clinics, research institutions. I think, you know, we found consistently that our best results came from individual doctors who had mm-hmm. authority and, and, you know, the ability to share their data under the right circumstances with us and uh, research heavy organizations who are used to sharing data with people. Um, Certainly, you know, talking to hospitals or or large clinics who, you know, their nine to five is not research, it's clinical operations, how do we optimize billing, how do we get people out of the waiting room faster, to come to them and say, hey, we'd like to share all your data uh, was kind of met with blank stairs. They they didn't know where their data was to begin with. Um, So, you know, we found that the individuals were probably the cornerstone to it all. Uh, and another reason for that is, you know, if you find a, a clinician who's very keen on, on solving the same problem as you uh, and, you know, offer them an opportunity to collaborate and they can see the, the patient outcomes of what you're doing, they're going to become an internal champion for you. And most of the, the big institutions that we collaborate were with building a relationship with one individual clinician who then went on to champion it within their organization and, and sort of acted as our, uh, inside man or lady uh, to help us through that process. So again, you know, that relationship building side that, you know, probably as a, an academic and as an engineer coming into this, I probably would have told you like, no, 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 it doesn't matter. You just get the data and you build the thing and it'll be fine. Uh, but, you know, certainly that, that relationship building side in, in worlds of big data, nobody has this much data in, on their own you really do need a network of, of providers to get access to this
1: stuff. That's awesome, man. So well done. And how, how did you guys come to focus on prostate cancer?
0: As I said, early days, we were looking at kind of whatever data we could get our hands on. We were, we were yeah. uh, small and, and excited and just wanted to build AI, uh, but probably one to two months into, to really getting serious with the the project that, that became the business uh, we met a local clinician here in Brisbane called Dr. Peter Swindle. Uh, So he's a local urologist. We were looking for clinicians to to work with uh, and it happened that his passion, his interest was MRI of the prostate. He taught radiologists how to read MRI uh, and he really just loved this idea of building technology to help make that process better. He's, Mm -hmm. you know, as a urologist, uh, you know, they, they do surgery as well as diagnosis. Uh, you see a lot of people end up, you know, with that same problem, coming in too late and having to have those conversations of like, I just wish you got here a couple of years earlier. Mm. Uh, and he, has, uh, he was very impassioned about what we do and, and remains to, uh, to this day uh, and said, look, I have a problem for you that is a big problem. Uh, it affects one in six men in their lifetime. Uh, and there's an opportunity here to drastically change the way that we deal with it. Uh, and that kind of, you know, we sold what we were doing to him and he sold the, the problem to us and, you know, we, we started working together and it's, uh, I guess the rest is history. As they say,
1: that's amazing, man. And, um, I think it's, it's, um, it's so important to highlight the the perseverance that is required to make a company successful. And, and the fact that, um, yeah, that you have to really like keep going, um, no matter what. And, and the fact that you guys were looking at lots of different types of data, sort of seeing whatever you could get your hands on, looking to build AI, looking to build the relationships and, and moving forward, you know, through the uncertainty and, the and I guess the, the unknown and making sure that you're moving forward to, to make, to make at one point, I'm sure it felt like make something happen and then, and then something started to happen. And now, man, like, look, look at you guys now. Like it's, um it's amazing. And it, and it shows, yeah, it shows so much determination, um, which is the, the part that's often not covered enough and not, 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 um, focus on enough on the startup stories that um people focus on the you know on the on splitting the spoils and and um you know as eric reese says it's like who's gonna be in the cover of magazines and and how's the money gonna be divided but people don't focus on the on the grind to get there so what does what does the company look like now uh what uh yeah what is the, what does the company look like now
0: we're still hungry for data. That's for sure. Uh, but you know, we're, as I said, we're in market, we're approved uh, as a medical device in Europe, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, sure. So we've been awesome. in, in market for about 12 months, yeah. um, which, you know, that approval process is a, a hour <laughs> long conversation in itself. Uh, and we, and we can touch on some aspects of that, but yeah, um, yeah we've been operating for about 12 months. Uh, You know, some of the things that are really amazing to me is, you know, we've seen thousands of patients and we've found, uh, you know, numerous cases of prostate cancer in those patients that would have gone missed by the current system. So there are guys out there that, you know, we looked at their data, we saw something in their data that wouldn't have been picked up otherwise, and our doctors said, we need to act And, you know, on with the hindsight of of knowing their outcomes, we acted at the right time. And, you know, those people have what is, you know, for prostate cancer, 98% five-year survival rate, because we acted in time to avoid that conversation of, man, I wish we'd caught you three years earlier. Uh, And for me, you know, to have that happen, uh, we saw the first of those sort of late last year, really came back and, and cemented what has been you know, four or five years of, of, as you say, the grind. Uh, and you know, I, I felt a little bit prepared for it, uh, as anyone who's done a PhD, it's like you just sit and do things that don't work for multiple years by yourself. Uh, but yeah, to get things like that happen, especially in this sector of, of healthcare to really be able to see that you can make a direct outcome on, you know, saving a life, uh, mm-hmm you know, really just, you forget about that grind pretty quickly when stuff like that happens.
1: That's fantastic, man. That is, fun. That is yeah, outstanding. Um, and tell me, tell me a little bit about that approval process. What was it like? Um, yeah, main stages, key frustrations, etc. How, how did you, how do you find the approval process?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough one. Even, even today, like, the way that the approval process works, it's, I mean, it's not really designed for software, let alone AI. Um, so, you know, the, the key example I give in trying to get this point across is that in our approval documentation, so basically, you know, you put a quality system together in your company, which is a sensible thing to do for any company. Uh, and then you create your products under that quality system and generate a big dossier about how your product performs and how it's safe for use. Ultimately, any regulatory approval is you do what you say you're going to do and and you're safe for patients. But we have a whole section in our dossier about what the uh, risk of poisoning is if you use our product because it's designed for a world where there's a physical product that somebody could accidentally put in their mouth Uh, and yet as a software company, we still have to say, I promise you won't get poisoned by our product, uh, that exists as software. Um, yeah. So that, that's kind of the cornerstone of, of, of the approval system. And I mean, interestingly, uh, the world we're in right now with COVID and the pandemic, is actually really having a big effect on the way that groups like the FDA are looking at approvals. They're saying, okay, this system really doesn't account for digital products well enough. And that has left us at a disadvantage in a tough time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for example, you know, products like FaceTime and uh, Zoom couldn't have been used in a medical uh, scenario because they weren't Mm -hmm. approved as medical devices. Yet, you know, uh, Apple, I'm sure, is more than capable of producing a secure communication channel between two people. So, you know, they've really started to revisit, how are they looking at these devices when they're primarily software as a medical device? Uh, And then, you know, for the last couple of years, groups like the FDA have been saying, look, we we see AI as almost a new category of medical device. Mm. How are we gonna think about the approval process for this? What do we need to do to make sure that it maintains its safety and its performance over time. Because I think, you know, the bigger lure of of AI companies in the medical world is that the more patients you see, the more data you get, the better the diagnostic tool comes over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, there needs to be checks and balances in place because as, you know, everybody in the AI world knows, you can overfit to your data. And if you overfit to the wrong data in the medical world, you know, it's it's potentially catastrophic outcomes. If you tell a whole bunch of people that they're healthy when they're not because 99% of your data is healthy people and you don't have the checks and balances in there, uh, you know, people can die. And that's why, you know, these systems are in place and, and that's why they always will and, and should be in place is to make sure that technology like AI that can provide all this potential, uh, I guess you know, and, and this is probably true for a lot of startups, gets its sort of reality check to say, look, you know, there is a bigger world outside your startup and we need to consider, uh, you know, the, the stark reality of the world. And we can't just let this stuff, uh, you know, go wild. Putting aside any, any crazy questions of AGI or anything like that, it's just checks and balances, make sure that it's still doing what it says it's going to do uh, and make sure ultimately that patients are safe
1: hundred percent that is definitely keen um so i'll i'll ask you I'll ask you more about that in in a bit but before I wanted to ask you about um uh maybe um, with the with the approval process to become a medical device uh why why did you guys look to uh, for example be registered in in multiple geographies um were they separate processes? And was that a must do for the for the company to to succeed and um, and survive long t- longer term?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, interestingly, the, the ones we have so far were out of a logistical benefit more than anything else. So, uh, this is very particular to Australia and the TGA. But uh, if you're approved uh, via CE Mark uh, via a notified body in the European Union. Mm-hmm. The TGA recognizes that as equivalence for its own approval process. So if we get mark, we can be TGA approved. Now that relationship doesn't work in the opposite direction.
1: Huh.
0: Uh, so for us, we said, okay, will we ever want to go to Europe? Uh, and the answer is yes, we would like to have our, our company operate in Europe one day. So let's go through that process, use it to have the equivalency here in Australia and, you know, two birds with one stone kind of scenario. Um, New Zealand was in a very similar boat. Uh, we had collaborators over there and we have, their system is one of primarily self-regulation uh, under similar guidance to uh, the CE and the the TGA notified uh, systems. So we were able to get that one up quite quickly. Now other markets, uh, the US is certainly on our radar uh, yeah they're a little bit slower a little bit more involved so you know it's it's more of a business timing decision for when we hit the fda but yeah it was uh a little strategic one a lot of people don't know that uh and i I don't remember who told me but i'm glad that they did uh, because having to do that twice uh would have been an expensive thing to learn on the fly
1: Definitely. Yeah. And painful. Um, Did you know you would guys, you guys would have to be um, approved as a medical device when you, when you started the company and the, in the early days, was it something that you knew you had to do at one point or did it come in later?
0: No, it it was something I knew. So uh, having worked on the cystic fibrosis project in the past, we went through Mm. a good portion of that uh, regulatory approval process so I was lucky enough to have some familiarity with the process. Uh, and I mean, for anybody out there looking at AI in the medical space, get a start on this early. The first time we did it uh, with the previous company, we said, oh, we want to get regulated now. Better start putting all this documentation in place and tried to squeeze what is 18 months of work into you know 18 weeks. And it's hell. And realistically speaking, like, you have to be monitoring your changes and and your design updates and that's hard to do for 18 months worth of work in 18 weeks uh, near impossible so if you're doing it my two pieces of advice are get us head start and hire a professional i mean this time we hired somebody who's done this a dozen times over uh, and i'm very glad that we did because uh, you know a lot of it is just knowing the standards back to front understanding how they fit together uh, and then contextualizing that for our business. Now, having done it, could I do it again without a professional potentially, but if your first time regulatory approval uh, get somebody who knows what they're doing, you will uh, pay dividends.
1: What I love about that, that part of the story is, you know, it's, it's quite often, I think, I think, or at least it should be quite often uh, that people should hear the, the fact that if you, if you're going to do a startup, try to learn some of it, like on somebody else's dime, <laughs> essentially like get, get a previous experience, um, in a different project. And then, and then once you've had a sort of one pass in terms of learning, go and do it, uh, on your own. It sounds like that is, is similar to what happened in your case. Um, how beneficial do you think was getting that, that first experience before doing Maxwell plus?
0: Yeah, I think it was very beneficial. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's learning from experience and then there's learning from, I guess, yeah, other people's experience Two Mm -hmm. things that I think when I was, you know, first time founder in that original product, uh, I thought I could work it all out myself Mm. and, you know, people out there can, but it's going to take you three times longer than if you find somebody who knows what they're doing, ask them for help and learn it. And I mean, one of the big learnings over the last four years is like, just try and learn from, you know, if you find somebody who's done it before you can take a year of their life and they'll condense it for you into probably a two hour conversation about the stuff you absolutely need to know Mm. And you've just saved yourself, you know, 11.9 months. Yeah. And then you can do that again and again and again and get way, way further than you could if you were to, to learn this all from first principles. And I think as a technical founder, it's often a temptation to do stuff from first principles. It's just like, I want to build it all. I'm going to build all my models from scratch. Forget, you know, what the people at Google know. They have no idea what they're doing. I'll just write all my, you know, I'll just do it all myself. Uh, and I think... The thing to recalibrate on is that you're here to solve a problem.
1: Mm.
0: You know, if, if you're taking your idea, your project and making it into a startup and a business, you're here to solve a problem for customers that you will hope will one day pay you. Mm. Uh, I guess the days of, you know, tinkering and, and building stuff, save that for personal time, save that for pet projects, save that for the weekend. If you're founding a startup, you've kind of got to ruthlessly say, if this isn't solving the problem in the most efficient way, we're not doing it this way. Uh, and sometimes the most efficient way is horrendously inefficient, like gathering data 10 pieces at a time, but that's yeah. just life. But uh, you know, certainly I've made this mistake, and I, I probably continue to, uh, to this day, is to, I guess, overbuild, over-engineer, and just try and do everything from scratch when there's a lot of resources and tools and people out there that can shortcut you to what is ultimately the interesting stuff which is, okay, you've built AI models that can look at medical data. That is an interesting problem. It is a hard problem, and it is a valuable problem. Mm. How do you get that to 100 million people around the world? And and that's kind of where we are today is, you know, how do we take what we have and and get it to 100 million people uh, so that all of this work that we've done today wasn't just building some cool AI models that sit on a server somewhere that never, you know, get used.
1: Exactly. But man, that's, that's a huge, um, that's a huge learning, huge transformation. And I think it's the key to being a, a business leader, right? Where you go from, from, as you were saying, like the transition that you've had, where you go from, I'm going to build it all, or as much as possible. And it's going to be sort of at my own pace of learning all the different areas that need to be done versus the I'm going to leverage experience and make sure that I'm getting the same quality output, if not better in like a such a small fraction of the time. And I'm going to be able to pull the leverage other people's experience and all the time that they've spent doing this. um, So I can get to the interesting part of the journey faster Um, it's such a, such a big change in mindset. Um, did you have any particular points that, that really helped you change that mindset?
0: Well, look, if I'm being totally honest, I I learned by screwing it up a whole lot. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, you know, more recently I would say there's good books and there's, you know, there's good people on our team on, you know, the investors that have invested in us that, have really led me down that path. Uh, You know, there's a a great book or two great books that I think really helped me transition from pure technical into more of a a, a, business building startup founder Mm. uh, was high output management, uh, which is from the old CEO of Intel, just about how to be a good manager. Now clearly a very technical role uh, but it's very pragmatic advice about, you know, how to manage. And once you've got more than, you know, you and a, a co-founder, you've got to start managing, whether you like to or not. Like, you know, there's a very different relationship between anyone you bring on and the original founders uh, and to treat them all as, you know, just extra founders uh, does them a disservice and, and does you a disservice. Uh, but anyway, I digress. The second book there is uh, it's called The Great CEO Within. Uh, It's a book out of Silicon Valley. Again, I think it's primarily aimed at technical founders, which is just like, look, close down your code for a second and just think about all of the other things that you need to think about. Uh, There are some bits in there, which like, you know, certainly as a founder in Australia, it's hard to relate to. I mean, one of them is, uh, you know, five years into your business, sell down $10 million of stock and then make sure you have enough money never to worry again. And I, I sit here going like, yeah, I can't really relate to that one at the moment. Uh, but a lot of the other advice is, is really pragmatic, uh, and obviously aimed at technical people and can help kind of level you up from just pure technical to, to technical founder, uh, type level.
1: Nice one. That's awesome, man. And, and definitely everyone that, everyone that uh, works in a startup, um, just make so many mistakes. Um, every, every single person that I know, uh, myself, like when I've had companies, it, it's, it's just, um, at least for myself, looking back at my time in startups, it just feels like a series of, on, of never ending mistakes. It's like mistake, 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 but that definitely that's where you um, get the learning. So thanks, thanks for uh, sharing that and definitely two good resources as well. Um, I do want to ask you more more about the the AI side. Um, firstly, uh, just a, a quick quick question is why did you guys have to be approved as a as a medical device um, if you're providing uh, software? What what was the the requirement there?
0: Yeah, so we fall under a category, uh, funnily enough, called software as a medical device. Uh, and because the clinicians that use our software are using it in the aid of clinical decision-making, that kind of puts us into a, a category of clinical decision support tools. Now, we're lower risk than if we built software that did all of the work. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, I think the world is decades away from an AI doctor without any human intervention. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we, we still count as a medical device mm-hmm. under that.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. And um, tell me, tell me about the, the AI side that you guys have, have built. Um, so you, you mentioned um, a little bit before around um, some time series components, some imaging components. Uh, so image classifications um, that you're, you're taking all this out over time. Uh, can you, can you expand a bit more about uh, what's, at least some of, some of the magic that's happening in the in the background for all the patients. Yeah,
0: definitely. I, I mean, let's, we can talk about the, the big meaty one, which is the analysis of MRI scans. So, you know, to contextualize uh, for those that are not familiar with medical imaging, uh, there's kind of two things that need to be considered. Uh, one, your images are not pixels, they're things called voxels, uh, which is a volumetric pixel, I suppose. Uh, So instead of squares, you've got cubes. Uh, And what we're doing when we're imaging somebody is, I guess, taking an image one little slice at a time to build up a 3D uh, model of that person. Uh, And, you know, as ridiculous as it sounds, like if you've ever played things like Minecraft, that's kind of a good visualization of how it works. Different blocks represent different types of tissue in the body. So the first complexity over, you know, traditional image processing uh, and image AI is that you're in 3D, uh, which makes, you know, from GPU usage uh, all the way through to everything else, it kind of just, you know, multiplies everything uh, somewhat exponentially. Uh, We need a lot of GPUs to train our systems. Um, But the additional complexity that we have is that for prostate cancer and and prostate imaging in particular, we use a process called multi-parametric MRI. And what that means is that the same way that uh, your camera will take a red, a blue, and a green channel, the MRI will perform, uh, in this case, three different sequences. uh, And that's kind of like one red, one blue, one green except they're designed to measure different things other than wavelengths of light. So there's T2 weighted image, which is mainly about anatomical detail. There's a diffusion weighted image, which is looking at how water is moving through the body, which can give you an idea about functional behavior within the body. And then there's contrast enhanced imaging, uh, which is when we uh, or the, the radiologist Injects the patient with a contrast agent. It's a metal uh, and a sugar bound together. But it's a gadolinium based substance. Uh, and it's because things like cancer are hungry, uh, mm-hmm. they tend to uptake more of the sugar than anything else. And then the gadolinium in this case uh, can be seen on the MRI as a, a sort of bright spot whenever there's a lot of activity with that contrast agent. So know step one is design an AI model that can process that Uh, and you know to add to add some extra flavor to the mix uh, these three sequences are not taken at once they're taken sequentially which means that between sequence one and sequence two the patient might have rolled over they might have you know moved around just breathed in and breathed out so you lack alignment even between the channels Mm. in your images Um, So there's a lot of pre-processing that goes on to try and optimally align these images. Uh, And then on top of that, that contrast imaging I was talking about, that is four-dimensional. So we take that same 3D volume at multiple time steps to monitor how that sugar flows in and flows out over time uh, to get an understanding of uh, uptake and and, uh, the eventual consumption and, and release of that sugar and all in all, that is a lot of data. Uh, mm. And we what we've done uh, for that, and, and you know, our primary goal here is very similar to object detection algorithms, is to find an area in that four-dimensional world, but you know, let's just use a 2D version of it uh, to say this section is likely to be cancer. Uh, so, you know, our models themselves. Uh, definitely take the best of what's out there in literature, uh, but they are adapted to the complexities and to the nuances of the types of data that we have. Uh, And for things like MRI, where this data is huge, there's not only the problem of how do you fit that all into a series of graphics cards, um, but very often we sort of hit a point where even if you had you know, a thousand graphics cards, it just wouldn't be feasible to run your convolution over this entire four dimensional space and then shrink it all back down and do it all again, let alone, you know, this, this concept of batch sizes, you know, very often our batch size is like two, if we're lucky. Um, So, you know, from our perspective, it's how do we take what was designed in these algorithms, these sort of best in class algorithms uh, and apply it to the scenario that we have. You know, we're, as a company, you know, we're not designing the next resident, but we are taking these ideas and applying them to a problem domain that, that very few people are, are, are looking at. And I think that's, you know, that's our value as a company is being able to combine this understanding of AI and this understanding of medical data and how those two things can come together to, to ultimately deliver value.
1: It's amazing, man. That's incredible. And how standardized are the um, the M, the outputs of the MRIs that you get from from different machines uh, or different hospitals? Um, how how close to one another are they?
0: So there's definitely differences, uh, which can be good and bad. So mm-hmm. you know, for us, we we've aimed to collect an international, multi-institution, multi-reader widespread demographic data set uh, because uh, and and the reason that's bad I should say is that it takes a long time. It's it's really hard to get that kind of diversity in data uh, because we've seen that in the medical world some AI models, uh, you know, trained on maybe just one or two institutions worth of data end up becoming good predictors of not the underlying disease state but which institution the data came from and if you know that this one is a late stage center and this one is an early stage center. You can get pretty good performance just by making that guess. Uh, so for us, it's really making sure that, you know, we're not biasing our data center to any of those kind of factors.
1: Man, there is so much there. I'm, um, I'm so impressed. Um, what, what, um, what effect sort of, if, if any, um, what effect if, if any on your company is going to ha- is the my health record going to have um that obviously uh, australia uh, or for for the people listening that don't know and uh, we have we have a, a big audience overseas as well so in australia the government's creating this this record to pull together an individual's health um health records from different providers um imaging doesn't sound like it's in the in the medium term or definitely not in the short term um and and my understanding at least is that it's going to be at the beginning a record that's going to be very high level to say you went to this doctor on this date you got bloods on this date but no no results of the test um so that's why i was phrasing the question though sort of is do you anticipate any any effect if any and, um, and are you, do you know more about the the timeframes when that's coming down the, the pipes?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, your statements are absolutely correct. Uh, you know, from what I've seen, it is quite high level. Uh, the intention in the long term is to get more data in there. Uh, and, you know, I'll say it's a, it's a wonderful initiative. I think, you know, centralizing all this healthcare information, if protected, And with the right privacy controls and and the right transparency is a a brilliant idea. Uh, I guess my worry is about execution and adoption. Um, Mm. Execution because uh, it's hard to engineer anything for 20 million people. uh, And, you know, the government will have a fair crack at that. And and I'm sure they'll get there eventually. Um, But adoption seems to be uh, a big issue as well. Mm. So, you know, we we don't currently integrate with my health record because there's no additional business value for us, but mm-hmm. we have users, members that have specifically asked us, you know, do you integrate? If you do, I don't want to be part of this uh, because there is, you know, underlying skepticism about the government's ability to, to protect that data and, you know, i making no oh. comment on, on what their ability is or, or how safe it is. Uh, mm-hmm. But even from the clinical side uh, and, and this has been an interesting one is that you know, certain clinicians who feel that, uh, you know, they're hard done by in the way of rebates, for example. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if the the rebate for seeing a certain type of clinician has not moved in the last, you know, 8, 10 years, and they feel like, you know, the cost of running their business has grown, but their remuneration hasn't, we've seen clinicians say, well, actually, as a fraternity, we're actually telling My Health Record that until you put this rebate up, we're not even going to consider it. Because the huh. logistics of implementing something like this yeah. aren't justified by the amount that we're getting paid. So I think the beauty of having something done by the government is that it's mass scale. The difficulty mm. of having something done by the government is politics, mm. uh, and I think ultimately it's it's going to be a, a battle of politics to determine how much uptake it gets.
1: Exactly. Now, well. Um... I keep I keep saying this, man, but I am I am so impressed. But by, by you guys, just you know, taking the initiative and and sorting out um, kind of like everything that you need in order to make this a reality, um, instead of waiting around for for a clearer, cleaner path to be sort of made in front of you. Um, so no, definitely, kudos for for doing all that. Um and tell me what's what's coming up next um for Maxwell Plus? What's what's uh the future of the company? What type of things are you guys looking forward to working on? Uh obviously things that you can share, but what's what's coming up in the in the future for the company?
0: Yeah, I mean twenty 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 for us uh is focused mainly around getting this out to more people. Um so you know, we're open for business, we got men signing up every day uh through our website. It's just trying to spread the word. Try, try and let the world know that we're out there, we're doing things the way they should have been known for a long time, and, and you can finally get that. Uh, and I guess from a more technical perspective, uh, we're starting to look, you know, for a long time we've been, uh, the way we phrase it is day one to diagnosis. So our job is to get you to a diagnosis uh, early enough that it makes a difference, uh, but without any sense of overtreatment. Now, the question that's, uh, you know, been been ticking around in our heads for a while is, If you have had treatment or you choose to go on to what's called active surveillance, which is, let's just watch this and determine when to treat the algorithms that we applied to do an initial diagnosis apply just as well to monitoring your diagnosis over time. So how can we then go to provide ongoing support to really see these, these men through from, you know, day one to, you know, day infinity. Whenever that is, and, and continue to provide, you know, real clinical value to these, these men.
1: That is so exciting. And for uh, for anyone listening, at what point should they think about going and, and checking out the website to see if they should sign up, if one of their loved ones should sign up, if one of their friends should sign up? Um, are there particular points where um, the, the listeners can be directing um, directing people to Maxwell plus.
0: Yeah, definitely. Look, if if you're a man and you're over 50, uh, and you happen to live in Australia, uh, check it out right now for yourself. Uh, if you have a family history of prostate cancer, a lot of people don't have this conversation, uh, but, but try and find out. Uh, it may be appropriate as young as 40, depending on the situation. We do a lot of pre-screening to work out if we can help you. Um, so, you know, you can sign up and, and we'll let you know, um, But yeah, definitely check that out. Or if there's somebody in your life, uh, that fits those demographics. I mean, I, I would dare to say that most of us either, well, most of us know a a man in their fifties from somewhere, whether it's parents or, or, or themselves. Um, so definitely have a look, uh, if you're interested in this space in general, uh, we have been quiet on this for a while, but we're just about to start kicking it off again is, uh, We're building up our mailing list again, starting to put out not only medical information, but technical info about what we're doing, uh, you know, in terms of AI and how we're building these, these big, you know, distributed TensorFlow models and so on. So even people that aren't ready for the product uh, you can jump on hear about what we're doing and, and, you know, just keep up to date with all things Maxwell. Uh, And yeah, I mean, I, I look forward to seeing everyone.
1: Oh, that's awesome, man. That's the, the, uh, the idea of the newsletter sounds fantastic. And, um, when, when the audience is thinking about, you know, who, who can go to, who should be checking out the website, I should have included in the list. Um, think about your colleagues as well. So not only obviously yourself, your family members, your, um, your friends, loved ones, but also colleagues. We definitely have, uh, people at work, you know, today, today, um, one of One of my colleagues and i were, were discussing um, breast cancer in our families and in in the case of my colleague, she had it and, and a lot of people in her family in in my case uh, my wife's family has has a likelihood to have breast cancer. sometimes you know these conversations are are extremely helpful and um, so don't yeah don't forget your colleagues um, Elliot. Mate, I, I just looked at the time. I can't believe this has flown by. It's been an absolute blast. Um, thank you so much for all the good work that you're doing. Extremely necessary. Thank you for the perseverance, the tenacity. Um, please keep going. I guess needless to say. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.